This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We want to start out today's program by noting earlier this week that actor Norman Lloyd celebrated his 100th birthday. In fact, last Saturday was declared Norman Lloyd Day by the Los Angeles City Council. We think the council did the right thing in celebrating his 82 years in show business. This correspondent had the chance to meet Mr. Lloyd at an event produced for the California Artists Radio Theater. This was especially cool for us because it was a play, Leviathan, written by Ray Bradbury and produced previously by Norman Corwin. The fact that we were able to go to Los Angeles and interview Mr. Bradbury and Mr. Corwin prior to that event made it that much more special. And, by the way, if you've never heard the interviews we did with those illustrious gentlemen, please check it out on our website at radioparallax.com. Up on stage for this radio drama produced before a live audience were William Shatner and Walter Koenig of Star Trek fame. By the way, Shatner was pretty good. Also on the stage was Norman Lloyd, and at that time I took his card. However, it took going to a second event in Los Angeles to actually hook up with him for an interview. That was a production of The Undecided Molecule, again, a work by Norman Corwin, originally produced back in the 1940s with Groucho Marx in the uh, lead role. On this occasion, the lead was played by our pal Phil Proctor of the Firesign Theater. At that time, we were able to actually sit down with Mr. Lloyd. Unfortunately, there was an equipment failure. We had to go back to Los Angeles to interview him at the Musso Frank restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard, which I believe is the oldest restaurant in Hollywood. In our second segment today, we will excerpt some of that wonderful interview with a show business legend. And I'm also happy to report, among our many trips to L.A. to attend the, these wonderful events, we're going to be able to speak in our second segment to... Voice actor, Corey Burton. Corey Burton was there at the tribute to Stan Freeberg last week. And we're delighted that he's going to come back in our second segment today and talk to us about it and about what it's like to be a voice actor. So by all means, stay tuned for that. But let us commence today's program as we like to do with the feature titled On This Date in History. Our date today is the 13th of November. It was on November 13th in the year 938 that Vietnam turned back the Chinese Han invaders at the Bac Dong River. This ended a thousand years of domination of Vietnam by China. It was on the 13th of November in 1790 that the German-born English astronomer William Herschel observed an unusual nebula, which appeared to be a star at the center of a luminous cloud. This led him to devise a new theory of stars condensing out of nebula under the force of gravity from surrounding gas, which turned out to be correct. It's just that thanks to better instruments like the Hubble Space Telescope, we can see it so much clearer now. And tragically, on November 13th in 1916, during World War I, the First Battle of the Somme ended after more than four months of terrible fighting with more than one million casualties on both sides, and nothing won by either. 
And on a happier note, November 13th in 1940, Walt Disney's Fantasia opened in New York City. The ambitious animated film with no plot was an artistic attempt to marry music and animation, and it succeeded. Our quote of the day comes from Conan O'Brien, who said, Nietzsche famously said, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What he failed to stress was that it almost kills you. Our quote of the day comes from Alfred North Whitehead, who said it requires a very unusual mind to undertake the analysis of the obvious. Our jokes of the day come from late night hosts Seth Meyer and David Letterman. First Meyer, who noted last week, Godzilla turns 60 on Monday. In the next movie, Godzilla will battle his newest enemy, Bone Density. Said David Letterman, you know what happened today? When's it going to stop? There was another fence jumper at the White House. Of course, this time it was Obama trying to get out. Noted Letterman, Obama's been very lonely. He's got no friends in the White House. In fact, when an intruder hopped the fence last week and made it all the way to the White House, Obama begged him to stay and watch football. All right, and our good news for the week, we have this. In a medical first, a woman in Sweden a few weeks ago successfully gave birth from a transplanted womb. Apparently, the baby boy had been born prematurely, weighing just under four pounds, but the mother and son were healthy. That's according to the bbcnews.com. The 36-year-old mother had been born without a uterus, but she did develop functioning ovaries. Here's the part I found amazing. Doctors performed the transplant using a uterus donated by a 61-year-old mother of two who'd gone through menopause. The woman took a series of drugs to stop her body from rejecting the womb, and six weeks after the transplant, she menstruated, a sign the organ was healthy. One year later, when the doctors were confident the womb was functioning properly, they implanted one of the frozen embryos that she and her husband had set aside. Boy, I have to take a page out of the Hewell Hauser playbook and say, that's amazing! Because it is. Our stats of the day start, first of all, with, um, oddly enough, some stats presented by Mr. Butts, the cartoon character in Doonesbury. Mr. Butts asked the reader not to blame the fact that kids were not hip to the danger of smoking on the tobacco industry because they noted in the Great Tobacco Settlement of 1998, they pledged $206 billion to the states to fund anti-smoking campaigns. What do the states use the money for? Well, 1.9% of the windfall was actually spent on prevention. The rest was spent on everything from fixing potholes to tax relief to building jails. In fact, nine states have even issued bonds backed by future payments. And isn't that pathetic? Of course, here's a worse one. According to the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. still leads the world in producing super wealthy people. It's according to a new report on global wealth by Credit Suisse. There are 62,800 Americans with a net worth of more than $50 million. That compares to 7,600 in China, 5,500 in Germany, 4,700 in the UK, and 1,800 in India. Finally, we have this stat. Couples that date for at least three years before their engagement are 39% less likely to get divorced than couples that dated less than a year before getting engaged. That's according to a study at Emory University. They did note that spending more than $20,000 on a wedding, conversely, made the couple 46% more likely to get divorced than those that spent $5,000 to $10,000.
And for our anecdote of the day, we're going to stretch the definition of the word to include this item, which is that researchers at the University of Rochester Medical Center in New York took a look at that age-old issue of the different emphasis on sex you find in males versus females. And they went really simple in this case. They were, in fact, studying the behavior of roundworms, animals whose simple nervous systems have made them uh, good candidates for study for many decades now. Previous studies had found that female roundworms, which are technically hermaphrodites since they can self-fertilize, always prioritize finding food over mating. Males, on the other hand, would leave a food source to find a mate even if they'd starved to death as a result. In the newest iteration, they genetically modified the male worms to make them more like females. And no, we don't know how they did that exactly. But the report was they then spent more time eating and less time mating. Whereas males that weren't modified left a food source and went round a barrier just looking for a chance to mate. Which I do have to ask at this point, is anyone surprised by this research? Evidently, assistant professor Douglas Portman told the Washington Post that while human activity is obviously influenced by cultural and social factors, these results do suggest that there are also some, quote, biologically based differences in the nervous systems themselves, end quote. At this point, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Apparently it was a good week this past week for racial harmony and cooperation with the news that in Zambia, Guy Scott... The vice president became the acting president of Zambia upon the death of President Michael Sata. This makes Scott the first chief of state in Africa who is white since the end of apartheid. It should be noted in the past that Zambia is one of the few countries in sub-Saharan Africa that has had an orderly transference of power from one administration to the next. That has been, sadly, an all-too-rare phenomenon in the region. It was, on the other hand, a bad week a couple weeks back for the relationship between man and robots. Well, at least this correspondent found out about it a couple weeks ago. It's actually a 2009 study. But here's the deal. Hundreds of robots got placed in arenas and were programmed to look for, quote, a food source, unquote, which was a light-colored ring. The robots were able to communicate with one another and were instructed to direct their fellow machines to the food by emitting a blue light. As the experiment went on, researchers noticed that the machines were evolving to become more secretive and deceitful. When they found food, the robots stopped shining their lights and instead began hoarding the resources, even though nothing in their original programming commanded them to do so. Louis Del Monte, who is the author of The Artificial Intelligence Revolution, noted that the implication is that the machines learned, quote, self-preservation, unquote, adding whether or not they're conscious is a moot point. I'll be back. And finally, it was an ugly week for those who love the mysteries of nature with the news that they've finally figured out what's causing those stones to move around the lake beds in Death Valley. 
You've probably seen pictures of these large rocks, sometimes weighing 600 pounds, and the tracks they leave across the dry lake bed. Well, apparently three years ago, a couple of cousins, James and Richard Norris, fitted 15 stones with GPS devices to monitor the locations on the lake bed. For the first couple of years, the rocks didn't move. But when the pair happened to be visiting Death Valley to check on their equipment last winter, the whole process unfolded before their eyes. On the lake bed was a shallow pool of rainwater that had frozen overnight. At sunrise, the ice broke into very large, very thin sheets, some of them hundreds of feet across, that were lifted up by the wind and then pushed against the boulders. These ice sheets acted essentially as sails, propelling the rocks across the wet, muddy terrain. So there you have it. Mystery solved. Tell me of this item from the Only in America file. Perhaps you've noticed those advertisements for direct television. They are a campaign to encourage people to switch from cable to direct TV. And they feature actor Rob Lowe playing the handsome, dashing version of himself versus a rather nerdy Rob Lowe. Well, in one of the ads, the the nerdy Rob Lowe is seen at a urinal, noting that he can't urinate with anybody nearby. This has invoked an outrage response from Steve Sofer, who is CEO of the International Pariuresis Association, which estimates that 7% of Americans have some form of shy bladder syndrome. He noted that these ads are in poor taste. Said Seufer, a social work professor at the University of Memphis, we don't mind if people have a little fun with it. It's a situation that a lot of people don't understand. In this particular case, the portrayal is making it look ridiculous that this guy's a loser for having a problem. What if he didn't have a leg or an arm? Are you going to make fun of them? Radio Parallax takes no official position on this controversy. Anyway, since the next item is generating apparently no controversy, uh, we're just going to go ahead with it. This one comes from deep in our archives, an interview that was conducted with Greg Feist by New Scientist magazine back in January of 2012. The magazine noted that he was championing a new discipline, the psychology of science, and asked what it was. Feist answered that it was the study of the thought and behavior of scientists, but it also included the implicit science done by non-scientists. For instance, children and infants who are thinking scientifically, trying to figure out the world and developing cognitive conceptual models of how the world works. Later on in the interview, the magazine asked the following, I understand that certain people, Jewish people, for example, are more likely than average to become scientists. Why? Answered Feist, I was brought up Catholic and married a Jewish woman. I spoke to my wife's rabbi and asked him this question. He said that in Judaism, there is no hierarchy, no one person who has more access to the, quote, truth, unquote, than anyone else. And there is a healthy tradition of debate. That way of critical thinking and debate is more congruent with the scientific attitude than Catholicism, say, which is based on dogma and hierarchy. Noted Feist, in the U.S., only 2% of the population is Jewish. 
yet about 30% of the members of the National Academy of Science and 30% of the Nobel Prize recipients are from a Jewish background, to which he added, that's no coincidence. And all we can say to that is, mazel tov. All right, let's do a little bit of follow-up, starting with a letter to the editor. Actually, it was more like a brief comment to the editor from last week's guest, Dr. James Fallon of UC Irvine, who, after listening to his interview, wrote to say, nice editing, great time with you, Doug. And, of course, the editing department belongs to Mr. McMillan. note that in 13 years of doing interviews, no previous guest has ever been astute enough to compliment the editing. Aww. All right, and in some follow-up, uh, you may have noticed that we've taken a dim view on this program of certain aspects of physics. Idiots who blather on about something taking place in this many seconds after the Big Bang tend to annoy the hell out of us. So it was with some glee we greeted the news that this idea that the microwave background radiation in space, which was thought to be polarized and thereby indicating something or other about the Big Bang, turned out to be apparently wrong. And to that we would add our skepticism about the great import, which was attached to the supposed discovery at CERN of the Higgs boson. We agree it's kind of some cool basic science, but... Anything that's that esoteric and hard to explain, it's just hard to attach a lot of importance to. And, of course, it turns out now that maybe they haven't discovered the Higgs at all. It was noted this week that new research reveals that the particle that they did find, well, it just might not be the Higgs. To quote from one piece in the web, Associate Professor at the Center for Cosmology and Particle Physics Phenomenology... Boy, doesn't that sound like a group you'd want to get drunk with? Mads Tudal Franson, that, that's his name, Mads Tudal Franson, explained that the Higgs particle is a part of the standard model in physics. And it was true that it could give details about data and particle. But apparently there's some other explanations that are capable of providing that data from other particles. Franson added that the particle that CERN discovered last year might be called a Tecna-Higgs particle, as it has some features of the Higgs particle, but it's not right to say that the particle was a Higgs particle. And I hope you're tracking with that, because I'm not. Now, the claim is being made that the new study by the researchers does not discredit the CERN's discovery and states that there could be possibilities that the European organization had discovered the Higgs, but the study also stated that it can also be possible that the particle just looks like a Higgs particle. And no, we are, we are not sure whether they've applied the old duck standard to this, in that if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's a duck, because if you don't know what a duck really is, you might be stuck with a techna duck, or I guess some thigmajig that just, just looks like a duck. Here's the punchline I like the best out of this whole thing. According to the researchers, to find out that the particle discovered by CERN was a Higgs or a Tecna Higgs particle, more data would be needed from the organization. 
You know what this means, of course, more money for research and maybe even a more powerful accelerator. And you know, this reminds us of a column written by Dave Barry about a decade ago, which he noted that he had strong suspicions that uh, researchers were sitting around these various particle accelerators with a pitcher of daiquiris saying, hey, there goes the particle now, and then cackling with mirth. Actually, we're in favor of cackling with Morth. We're going to try to do a little bit of that in our second segment, talking about some giants in the entertainment field. So by all means, don't go away. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.